0: Howdy everybody. CJ here and welcome to another dose of dangerous history. This episode is going to feature the audio of a talk I gave a little over a month ago as I'm recording this intro. So this was at the March 2023 self reliance festival in Tennessee that I attended and was a speaker at. And my topic in this talk is going to be. The decline and fall of empires, and in particular, some of the things, unfortunately, pretty much all negative, that tend to happen and that tend to be inflicted by ruling oligarchies on empires that are in decline and collapse mode. So this was a really neat event. I would definitely be happy to go again in the future if I were invited again as a speaker. It's in a fairly rural area of Middle Tennessee, and most of the presenters were very, like, practical, nuts-and-bolts stuff. You know, homesteading, prepping, self-defense, self-reliance, all those sorts of things. And then there's me giving the grand historical perspective from the perspective of somebody who thinks too much. But it seems to be a well-received talk. I got a lot of compliments and Conversations afterward by people. So that was cool. And I have a bunch of thank yous uh, regarding this event. So, first off, thanks first and foremost to Nicole Sauce for inviting me and helping to arrange the logistics and all that stuff. She basically organizes and runs the event. And big thanks to John Willis of SOE Tactical. He hosted the event on his compound, which was a really cool place. And he was also nice enough to have me on his show while I was there as a guest. So thank you, John. And then also big thanks to Ken, longtime DHP listener who lives in the Nashville area. And Ken was my chauffeur and concierge. So I very much appreciate. Him helping me out with all that, you know, picking me up from the airport, driving me to the airport again on the way out, that sort of stuff. Thank you very much, Ken. I appreciate it. And also a thank you to Andy, who was kind enough to feed me a couple of lunches at the event. Andy grills a mean burger, and he was kind enough to spot me a burger at the event on Saturday and Sunday for my lunches. So I appreciate it, Andy. Thank you very much for feeding me. And then just a couple more things before I turn it over to my talk. The first is that I'm going to go ahead and plug my Renegade University course that I taught back in January. Because you can still purchase access to the video recording of that course. And it is a three-part course. And each session runs, I believe, in the neighborhood of two hours. So it is roughly a six-hour, maybe a little bit more course taught by me on the Decline and Fall of Empires that obviously goes into much more detail than I could in a, you know, 45-minute talk or whatever. So if the kinds of stuff that I talk about in this episode intrigue you and you would like to hear me talk, you know, for over six hours about this kind of stuff, including some Q&A for those students who attended the Renegade University course in real time, You can still purchase access to the recording of the show, so there will be a link in the show notes to my course, The Decline and Fall of Empires, at Renegade University. And I realize I probably should have plugged it, like, at the end of my speech, so that the attendees of the event might have gone and signed up for it to, you know, hear a bunch more about the topic that I spoke on, but I'm such an absent-minded idiot that I forgot to do so. So I'm doing it here. And, you know, there's a lot more ears here anyway. There were, you know, maybe a a couple hundred people listening to me speak in person. Thousands of people, though, are going to download this episode, even within just a week of it being published. I'll also include a link in the show notes to the page about hiring me as a speaker. If you would like to have me give some sort of a talk or presentation to your group or event or whatever, I have a contact page specifically for that. On my website, and there will be a link to that in the show notes as well. It will say something like, hire CJ to speak at your event. And then lastly, I do have one Indiegogo shout out to give. So big thanks to Todd for recently throwing in a contribution to my ongoing Indiegogo campaign to keep the DHP afloat. And reminder, as always, you can help me out and keep this thing going by giving a one-time contribution through Indiegogo. Of course, one of the most helpful ways you can help to support my work and get all kinds of perks and bonuses in return is to sign up for a regular contribution via Patreon or Subscribestar. And there's a bunch of other ways that you can throw me a few shekels and keep me doing this thing called Dangerous History. So anyway, enough introductory yammering from me. I will now turn it over to myself, speaking on what to expect when your empire is collapsing at the March 2023 Self-Reliance Festival in Tennessee. Okay, so, my apologies for making your lunch break uh, a working lunch break. Somehow, whenever I speak at events or anything like that, I always end up being scheduled right before lunch. I don't know why it always happens, but anyway, I'll try to make it interesting uh, if I can. So, imagine if you were born in London... In 1897, the same year, Queen Victoria celebrated her, uh, what is it, Diamond Jubilee, I think, 60 years on the British throne, which of course at that time included not just the UK, but various colonies, provinces, and dominions scattered across the world. In fact, the sun never set on the British Empire. You controlled not just all of the British Isles, but you controlled uh, the Cape of South Africa. You were colonizing Australia, New Zealand, Canada was part of your empire. On top of that, scattered islands and outposts around the world, the Suez Canal in Egypt, and of course, the crown jewel of the British Empire, India. The sun never set on the British Empire. London was the financial and many other types of capital of the world. The British Navy ruled the waves and was larger and more powerful than the next two navies in the world combined. Even though you had lost a little bit uh, to the United States and Germany in recent decades, still in many ways, uh, England was the workshop of the world. In 1899, while you were still a baby, the British fought a nasty war in South Africa known as the Boer War, and while it was kind of a mess and it cost your empire a lot, ultimately at the end of it all, in 1902, you emerged victorious with control of even more pieces of South Africa than before, including the world's most productive gold and diamond mines it seemed like this might be the one empire that would finally beat the spread and not fall to decline and fall like every single other empire in human history. Then, in 1914, when you would have been 17 years old, and by the way, you have terrible timing, World War I broke out, and your leaders, the the rulers of your government, decided... To use the pretext of the German invasion of Belgium to jump in on that one, even though the initial stages of that war had nothing to do with any sort of attack or threats on Britain. There is a very good chance you would have fought in that war, either as a volunteer in the first couple of years or perhaps as a draftee in the latter years of the war. Assuming you emerged from that war not dead, you would have if you were paying attention, started to see little cracks and problems in the empire. Some of it started even during the war. Like, for example, the Irish launched yet another rebellion to break free of British control in 1916. And while that rebellion was brutally crushed, they came back a few years later with a much more well-thought-out guerrilla warfare strategy and ultimately... One status as a self-governing free state within the British Empire um, by the early 1920s and were on the path to becoming a completely independent republic by the 1940s. Your empire emerged on the winning side of World War I and on paper reached its peak after World War I in terms of land, people, and resources, picking up additional possessions in Africa as well as um, a lot of territory in the Middle East at the expense of the declining Ottoman Empire. On paper, you would have looked at your empire in the 1920s and 30s and said, wow, this is even more impressive than it was when I was a little baby. But sometimes appearances can be deceiving, and while you were on the winning side of World War I, it was an extremely costly and empiric victory, and while you picked up all these additional territories, many of them were not going to be easy to hang on to, and we're and are going to end up costing you more to hang on to uh, than they bring you back in terms of resources and wealth. Also, something not as noticed as it should have been at the time, World War I resulted in the United States overtaking you as the financial juggernaut of the world, because your empire emerged from World War I owing the United States uh, government and banks a lot of money. You would have experienced a rough time of it in the interwar years, including the slump, which is what the Brits called the Great Depression. And then, of course, you would have had World War II. And again, you would have emerged from this war on the winning side, but it was even more of a costly, weakening, pyrrhic victory than your victory in World War I was. And in short order, dominoes would have started to fall in the process of what we now call decolonization. Uh, India would get its independence primarily through the nonviolent resistant campaign of Gandhi. Ireland would become a fully independent self-governing republic in the late 40s, and the dominoes continued to fall from there. You lost control of the Suez Canal in the aftermath of World War II. You've lost India, the crown jewel of your empire, and the things continue to fall away over the course of the 1950s and 1960s. So, When you were reaching, uh, your 70s, most of the British Empire was gone, including the African colonies, most of the colonies in Asia. So that by the time you reached, oh, about 85 years old, the British Empire was reduced to not even all of the British Isles, because you lost most of Ireland and a handful of little outposts and things around the world and also theoretically the commonwealth dominions like Canada and Australia that still put the queen on their money but that's about it you know otherwise they're basically sovereign uh, nation states and then you would have seen the last little hurrah of empire in 1982 at the age of 85 if you were still alive with the big win to hang on to the Falkland Islands at the expense of Argentina This is an empire that went from defeating Napoleon, defeating the Germans twice to, yeah, we beat Argentina and kept these little, you know, guano Islands or whatever. This shows you that in the span of one person's lifetime, an empire can go from being a dominant hegemonic superpower to being, at best, kind of a mid-rate, Power player, no longer a military or financial superpower, no longer ruling the waves, no longer controlling most of the key choke points of trade and commerce. So empires throughout history rise and fall. One thing that all empires have in common, none of them last forever. For the sake of argument and to save time, I'm going to assume that an audience at an event like this is more likely than the average people walking around out there in Zombie Land to already agree with me on two kind of basic claims. One is, the United States of America is an empire. Two is, the United States of America currently is very much an empire in serious decline. And has been for a while. And I'm someone who believes that If things are going bad and falling apart and there's not really any realistic way to fix it in reality grown-up land, your best bet is to admit you have a problem, come face to face with it, and try to manage the crash as best you can. Now unfortunately, like most imperial elites, in fact almost all imperial elites throughout history, ours currently are either don't realize this, or they do, but they're pretending publicly they don't. And so we're in a situation sort of like a plane that is just definitely going down, and the pilots are up there saying, well, if we just believe hard enough in the exceptionalism of this plane, it can magically keep flying. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll, we'll hit a few knobs in the cockpit or whatever, and that'll do it. Um, and unfortunately, they're not doing the right thing, which would be, What's the least destructive way I can crash land this baby? So I'm going to run through things that you see commonly in empires when they're declining and collapsing. Whether it's ancient empires or more modern ones, a lot of the big picture stuff that happens is basically the same, just with different, you know, technology and different scenery and all that sort of stuff. So these are kind of like my Ten things that you're likely to see in an empire that's going through decline and collapse, these are in no particular order, and uh, all of them kind of will reinforce the rest. It sort of turns into like a a downward spiral of each thing makes the other things worse. The first one is, uh uh-oh, hopefully there's a dry erase marker. I feel like I'm back teaching in the classroom like I did for 16 years uh, in teaching college history, every morning, no matter what happened, the first dry erase marker I would pick up that morning would be the one that's about to die. So, guaranteed, guaranteed. So, number one, if you can't read it, wars get stupider. They also tend to get more frequent, by the way. If you look at empires that are like on the rise, that are the rising empires, they usually fight fewer wars than empires on the way down. As counterintuitive as that sounds. Empires on the rise, leaders tend to be a little bit more careful about picking their their fights. And so they tend to fight fewer wars, and they tend to fight wars they're more, much more likely to win and where there's a lot more upside if they do win. Whereas empires in decline, it's the other way around. They fight more wars. They tend to fight wars where there's more likelihood it might not you might not win, and they tend to pick fights where even if they do win, there's not a lot of upside. It's like a costly Pyrrhic victory um, that costs more than whatever it is you win in terms of resources, wealth, etc. So it seems like, to me, from what I can tell, that imperial ruling classes, whether they consciously think this or not, it's sort of there, this idea of, they don't want to admit it out loud, but somewhere deep down, they kind of realize they're flying a plane that's maybe going to go down. But somehow they convince themselves that if they just pick a few fights with people, they can flex their muscles, stomp the crap out of some other empires or other nations or whatever, show the world they're still badass, they've still got their mojo, and that's it. They can make their empire great again. This is like when the... Aging over the hill heavyweight champ decides he's going to step back into the ring one more time and try and win that belt one more time. Every now and then there's a freak like George Foreman who can do it. Most of the time, though, it's a bad idea. So you're going to see a lot more wars that are just dumber. They're more irrational. They're, they're wars that are less necessary. They're wars of choice. Again, there are wars where you're less likely to win, and even if you do, it's such a costly victory that you didn't really win anything. And so you see this in many different uh, places. You see it with the Soviets deciding to invade Afghanistan in 1980. You see it with the British and a lot of the wars they fought in their waning years, uh, particularly the wars of decolonization. You also see it on display in World War I. Most of the empires that went into World War I thought it was going to be a super easy, barely an inconvenience victory that would make their empire great again, turn around decline, and show the world they were still badass. Most of the empires that went into World War I did not come out of World War I. And a lot of the empires going into World War I were empires that were already in serious decline. So the Ottoman Empire, the Austrian Empire, the Russian Tsarist Empire, the Romanov Empire, those leaders went into that war, they all thought, oh, for sure, I'm going to win, it's going to be super easy, and I'm going to win all this cool stuff and resources, and I'm going to show the world and, and my own people that my empire is still strong and in its prime. And well, those empires didn't make it, they didn't survive the war. So very often, empires pick fights where instead of turning around the decline, it speeds it up. Um, and, and even the British, by the way, like I said in my intro, the British won World War I and World War II in terms of they were on the side that won the war technically. But each of those wars weakened their empire in significant ways rather than making them stronger. Second thing, economic problems increase as an empire is in decline. The economy of a declining empire tends to be more about rent-seeking than it is about increasing productivity, and increase, even increasing resources. Rent-seeking, if you don't know that term in an economic context, that means you're just trying to grab for yourself a bigger piece of the existing pie. Very often, in, in these situations, it's actually a shrinking pie. Rather than trying to grow the pie overall like by you know, increasing productivity. And so in declining empires, very often what you see is a scramble of elites becoming ever more kleptocratic, trying to grab more on the way down of a shrinking pie. And they're doing this at the same time. Very often they're fighting more wars, and they're often engaging in increased welfare state programs, by the way, too, which I'll get to. And how do you finance more wars and more welfare state programs if your economy is stagnant or even declining? Usually they do it through a combination of two things. Number one, just ever increasing taxation, which economics 101, that's only going to make this worse. And then another one that as far as I know, the Romans were the first to discover, which is monetary inflation. That's the other way. Because sooner or later with taxes, you hit a wall where people can't pay anymore and start to resist and evade a lot more. And so what do you do if you still want to fight a bunch of wars and build monuments uh, and hand out free bread to poor people so they don't think about revolution? Well, create more money. And the Romans figured this out by diluting the silver content of their coinage, which was called uh the denarius. And they gradually, over the course of their decline, just kept adding more and more, you know, tin or whatever to the denarius. Hey, look, we got more coins. We can spend on all we want, and not even jack up taxes. But of course, what does that do? Well, it just makes the purchasing power of each denarius that much lower. And so very often you get into this downward spiral of economic decline where everything the elites are doing to try and turn the decline around is actually speeding it up, just like with the wars. Everything they're doing to try and fix the situation is actually making it worse and speeding it up. And you can get into really serious problems here. Um, there's a cycle that often occurs where a government engages in monetary inflation... This leads to rising prices. Very often, rulers do not say, wow, let me stop doing what I'm doing because it's causing the problem. Instead, they use something else to try and treat the symptoms that makes everything worse. So very often, um, a government experiencing inflation resorts to price controls. Great, we'll just decree that stuff only costs so much now. Problem solved. Except that leads to shortages. Because if you're artificially holding the price of stuff below what it really should be, well, whoever's in charge of producing and selling that stuff isn't going to do it anymore. Because why would you, you know, why would you grow wheat and bring it to the market and sell it if you're going to be losing money on every bushel you sell if you're a Roman farmer? And so you typically end up with shortages, and then when that happens, you often end up with things um, like rationing and other controls, and then very often... People are trying to, if they're producing these goods, they're trying to avoid bringing them to market, so very often governments will then turn to things like anti-hoarding laws and that sort of stuff. So you see that, for example, happening in the late Roman Empire from about um, late 200s, early 300s onward, this cycle of monetary inflation, price inflation, price controls, shortages, anti-hoarding laws, and essentially uh, economic authoritarianism. Part of the problem, as I mentioned briefly before, is welfare state programs also tend to proliferate during periods of imperial decline. And basically what this is, is the state trying to keep the population docile, loyal, and obedient. So as the Roman Empire declined, they kept getting more and more generous in what they would offer to poor people in terms of handouts, benefits, right? the famous bread and circuses and all that. The British actually did something uh, similar. Uh, it was actually during World War II that the British government laid the foundation for the welfare state that they still have today. Uh, during World War II, and by the way, th- this is not coincidence that it happened during World War II because they were trying to figure out how to keep people loyal and supportive of the war effort, and essentially they were buying their loyalty by saying, hey, if you help us win this war, we'll give you all these new welfare programs as goodies as a thank you. And so there was something, uh, created during the war called the beverage report, which was an official government report that basically said, all right, we need, you know, socialized medicine. We need, you know, all these different, uh, social programs and whatever. And then that was implemented right after the war, uh, when the labor party got voted back into office. Obviously that only exacerbates your fiscal problems, figuring out how to pay for that while your economy is in serious decline. Another one you see very often increased authoritarianism at home. Empires, whether it's officially or unofficially, there's always a difference between what, you know, historians and political scientists who study empire, what they would call the the core or the center and the periphery. And sometimes that's literally physical, right? Like the the fringe frontiers of the empire, it's different than in the, the metropolis. Sometimes it's just political. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of, certain places are not going to have the same political and economic power within the empire as others, right? So, you know, it's very different if you're, um, you know, out on the frontiers of the Roman Empire versus if you're, like, right in the city of Rome or right in central Italy. Typically, the way empires operate, whether it's official policy or not, in practice, it's usually this way, where they're, they tend to be more authoritarian the further out on the frontiers they are of their empire. And usually they'll start off doing authoritarian things out on the frontier that they would never dream of trying to do back home, you know, in the metropolis uh, center. But sooner or later, those authoritarian methods and practices and things start to filter back home, back to the center. There's a saying to sum this up. It's called the empire always comes home. And so, um, to give you an example, the British, for a long time, had a very free society at home. They, you know, if you were like in the 1800s, Britain was a very low-tax society, unless there was a major war going on, like against Napoleon. Otherwise, very low taxes, pretty free market, um, and believe it or not, huge amount of freedom to do things like carry around guns in London. And if you go back to the 1800s, the British cops were carrying sticks, but a citizen could just, you know, pack a revolver and walk around. Well guess what? As the British Empire starts to decline, more and more of those authoritarian things that previously would have been unthinkable at home start to filter back. And a lot of it again ties into war. So for example, very early on in World War I, the British government passes something called the Defense of the Realm Act in 1914. And the Defense of the Realm Act was essentially the first building block of creating a domestic surveillance and police state apparatus in the home territory of the UK. The British had previously run operations like this in India, you know, in Kenya, and in, in other places that were the fringe of their empire. They did all sorts of authoritarian, you know, police state, surveillance state type things. But now they're starting to do it at home. Also, by the way, in the immediate aftermath of World War I is when the British first started to pass major gun control legislation at home. Again, there had often been strict rules like you don't want the natives getting access to guns if you're in an African colony or in India or something like that. But the British people at home had a you know, pretty strong right uh, to be armed prior to, I think it was 1921 or 22, immediate aftermath of World War I. And again, it was connected to the war. Um, they They essentially used, they were motivated by the fear of number one, Irish rebels, and number two, communist revolutionaries in the UK. And so they decided to start passing gun control. That was the beginning of the draconian gun control that the UK has today. In the United States, there's an interesting case. Um, I would recommend anybody interested in this, go uh, look up a book. It's a big, dense book, but it's, it's very good by a great historian named Alfred McCoy. The book is called Policing America's Empire. And what you find is a lot of authoritarian police state type procedures and things that eventually come home to the United States, a lot of it originated in the U.S. counterinsurgency campaigns in the Philippines at the turn of the last century. And again, things that would have been considered unthinkable to do back home in the lower 48, they do them for generations in the Philippines, and then eventually those practices filter back home. And you can see this, by the way, you can see uh, each significant increase in things like police militarization at home here was preceded by messy counterinsurgency campaigns somewhere far away where those sorts of things were considered okay to do, but eventually they come home. So, for example, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, there's a significant spike in police militarization in this country. That's when we get our first SWAT teams and a lot of other things that we associate with the modern uh, militarized police. Possibly the only empire I'm aware of that didn't get more authoritarian as it was declining was the Soviet Empire, and a lot of that is just the bizarre exception of Mikhail Gorbachev being a decent guy and not wanting to be a tyrant. And so Gorbachev was actually making the Soviet system freer in the latter days of the Soviet empire, but that is abnormal. Typically, that is not, not what an empire in serious decline uh, is likely to do. Next one. Average quality of your leadership declines drastically and noticeably. I know. Sounds crazy. But just as a theoretical proposition, use all the imagination you have, leaders tend to become, on average, there's the occasional individual exception, but leaders tend to become more corrupt and less competent as the empire declines. And yeah, and you see this, whether it's it's Rome, whether it's um, the Soviet empire, you know, whether it's the latter days of the Ottoman empire, like... Almost any empire you could think of, especially if it went through kind of a long, protracted decline, you can see the average quality of leadership just going down and down. And part of it is that that kleptocratic impulse I mentioned before, where leaders more and more are just fighting over getting bigger pieces of a shrinking pie as the empire falls apart. Empires always have a certain amount of corruption baked into how they operate. But when an empire is rising and kind of strong and healthy, the corruption is kept within practical limits. Where the corruption is not going to destroy the whole system. But empires in serious decline, the corruption just goes totally off the reservation, way out of, way out of hand, way out of proportion to where it actually can be a fatal threat to the system itself continuing to operate and survive. In addition to leaders tending to become less competent and more corrupt as an empire declines, another thing that happens, and again, this might shock you, but just use your imagination as best you can. Very often, not always, but very often, the average age of leaders noticeably increases. So you go from an empire where like a lot of your top leaders are maybe like 40s, you know, the older ones are 50s, to where they might be in their 70s or even older. Yes, every other empire has their own kind of boomer generation, I guess, that just won't leave, that won't retire. So you see this, for example, in the latter years of the Soviet Union, where prior to Gorbachev coming in, he was kind of young and unusual in many ways when he came in. But prior to Gorbachev, you had a succession of Soviet leaders who were all very old, senile, barely knew what was going on, and and surrounded by yes-men telling them they were brilliant and awesome and the greatest leader ever. So, you know, Leonid Brezhnev is a great example of this. And then there were a couple of other leaders that served briefly after him uh, where they, they would come in, uh was it, uh, uh, Chernenko and, um, oh, one other guy, and, and Dropov, that came in after Brezhnev finally died. And they would come in, take over, and within like a, a year or two, they'd be dead because they were that old and unhealthy and whatever when they came in. To the point where Ronald Reagan actually joked about this. By the way, Reagan, everyone was like, oh, is he too old to be president? I believe he was, what, 67 or 68 when he was elected to his first term, that's a decade younger than all of our recent, you know, contenders for the presidency, right? But everybody back then was like, oh my God, is Reagan too old? Now it's like, hey, 79, he's still got a couple good decades left in him, you know? (laughs) And I think part of it is that as empires grind along and get bigger and more complicated, and the bureaucracy gets bigger and more complicated over time, it's just sort of the natural tendency More and more, in order to rise through the ranks of the state, it's all about just corruption, nepotism, and how long are you there. Whereas when an empire is not so burdened with excessive bureaucracy and complexity and all that, there's more opportunity for younger people to rise to high positions if they're competent. But increasingly, it's just about, you know, how many great corruption connections do you have and how long have you stuck around? I don't know if you can imagine any... Leaders currently who fit that description, but, you know, maybe if you try hard enough, you could, you could think of one. Next thing, quality of military tends to decline. And there's a lot of different ways this can happen. Part of it has to do with the increasing inefficiency and corruption of the system itself, the, the state that actually, you know, creates and funds the militaries. Part of it has to do with the kinds of wars that these empires are fighting. Increasingly, they're not the kinds of wars that your best people are eager to go sign up for as it becomes obvious that these are these messy, nasty wars I talked about before, these stupid wars, partly it has to do with if you start off with something like citizen-soldiers over time, it stops being that, whether it's Rome, United States, whatever. You start off with this ideal of the citizen-soldier, who is not a full-time professional soldier, but you know has some training, does do some militia practice, whatever it is, and then in time of war, drops his plow, picks up his weapon, and goes out. Eventually, that becomes a separate professional caste. It becomes a career. And then, like with the Praetorian Guard in Rome, they become a separate little, like, government within the government unto themselves. So very often you end up with militaries where the loyalty is not to the state, the nation, the empire as a whole, but instead to whoever's paying you, whoever happens to be your general, whoever happens to be, you know, your local kind of warlord or whatever like that. Another thing that often happens is increased resort to conscription. And obviously that, that creates problems. So in general, uh, morale and motivation start to be problems more and more. Troops become, you know, less, uh, reliable and trustworthy. And another thing that happens, I think in many cases is that an empire gets to a point where it's no longer fighting near peer competitors. And so that tends to make their military uh, complacent, conservative in the sense of not, you know, keeping up with innovations and all that. Um, and as with the political leadership, more and more, how do you become a general in a declining empire's military? Less to do with merit and more to do with time served, connections, corruption, politics, etc. So, by the way, there's an interesting meme I've seen going around, uh, it shows General Dwight Eisenhower in his full military getup with all his decorations and everything. And then next to him is, I think it was Petraeus in his military getup. And Petraeus has like 10 times as many ribbons and medals and decorations as Dwight Eisenhower. And on the meme, under Eisenhower, it says, won a war. Under Petraeus, it says, lost a war. And I, I think the meme said something like, This is what happens in a participation trophy society. My thinking was real gangsters don't gotta flex because they know they got them. Next thing, infrastructure deteriorates. As the economy declines and the fiscal situation becomes more and more of a problem and there might be hyperinflation, all these sorts of things, one way or another, the infrastructure is not getting properly maintained. Whether it's you know, the roads, bridges, and aqueducts aqueducts of the Romans, or whether it's, I don't know, train tracks that run through Ohio. But basically, things just start to degrade. New infrastructure isn't being built as much. I mean, just think about this. Can you imagine today's U.S. government building the interstate highway system and getting it done as quickly as... How about this? Can you imagine today's U.S. government building the Panama Canal and getting it done quickly and a little bit under budget. See, I can imagine senile leaders about to keel over a lot easier than I can imagine something like that. That's fantastic. That's, um, you know, flying pigs. And you see this uh, as well with the Soviet empire, right? You have things like the Chernobyl meltdown, for example, and other instances of the Soviet uh, infrastructure just falling apart, not being properly maintained, all that sort of stuff in the 1970s and 80s. Next thing I'll mention, culture degenerates, for lack of a better term. And here, I think a big part of the problem that leads to cultural degeneration during a declining empire is those economic motives of a shrinking or stagnant economy, increased inflation, economic instability, they tend to create a high time preference population. People just get incentivized. Naturally, logically, to think more in terms of, you know what, I'd rather just consume and have a good time now because things just keep getting worse every year. My therapist defined depression as rumination without hope. Whether they admit it explicitly or not, people often can kind of tell when their, their system, their country, their empire is in decline. And it tends to make more of a high time preference society. And then this then bleeds over into other behaviors, not just economic behaviors, where people increasingly become more about instant gratification rather than about perhaps sacrificing now for the sake of a better tomorrow. If you think tomorrow is going to be worse no matter what you do, who cares? Have a good time today. You see this in the elites. As they're being kleptocrats and looting everything, they'll engage in more blatant, conspicuous consumption. And if you've ever watched any of like our Hunger Games... Uh, political or Hollywood events that that's what you're looking at you're looking at um, conspicuous consumption also by the way and I'm not sure why this is there's an increased tendency for societies in serious uh, decline to have people suddenly get super obsessed with gender and with blurring gender norms and everything I don't know you know if there's a real good explanation for why this is but it's very common in a declining empire and I'll try and wrap up as quick as I can here. Um, increased political crises. <clears throat> and this can be in the form of increased political instability at home, political crises, constitutional crises, you know, governments being overthrown or nearly overthrown. And it also can take the form of increased rebellions out in the provinces as people who have not been happy in the empire realize the empire is weakening and take their opportunity as the Irish did to rebel when their overlords seem to be losing their power and strength. Next one, private sector crime tends to increase. So you have a state that's increasingly being predatory on you by taking more of your taxes, being more authoritarian, all these things. And at the same time, that state is no longer doing as effective of a job as they used to of like keeping you safe from bandits and pirates and thieves and whatever. And in an extreme case, this can turn into what they call anarcho-tyranny, which I would argue is what you have, say, in San Francisco, where if some guy comes into your store and walks out with 500 bucks worth of stuff, the authorities won't do anything. But if you use a baseball bat to stop that guy from stealing stuff out of your store, you get in trouble. They'll come after you if you, you know, miss a few bucks on your taxes, But they're not going to do a good job protecting you when, I don't know, some crazy guy is shooting up your kid's school. And then the last thing I'll mention real quick is just what tends to happen in the aftermath of an empire. It can go a lot of different ways. You can have a full-on collapse into a dark age, as happened to the Romans or the Mycenaean Greeks or others. I don't think that's very likely in today's world unless there's something as drastic as like full-blown nuclear war. But you can end up in the situation where there's a revolution like, for example, happened to the Tsarist Empire, overthrown uh, by the Bolsheviks. You can end up in a situation where the empire loses its colonies, but the home government remains intact, as, for example, happened to the British. Or um, you can end up in various combinations, like what happened to the Soviets. And basically, I've come to believe that sort of the last straw for a collapsing empire, and this is my closing thought, that the last straw for a collapsing empire is actually narrative. Empires live on narrative, and the narrative of the empire and all the good it does and why you should support it and believe it and why it's the best empire ever never lines up 100% with the reality. But as with the corruption, there's limits, right? And so if you were looking at the narrative of the American empire in 1965, it wasn't that far off from reality. But if you're looking at the narrative of the American empire today, all of the rhetoric about why the American Empire is the greatest thing—they wouldn't call it the American Empire—but why, you know, the U.S. and is a force for good in the world and the liberal, rules-based economic world order and all this sort of thing—and all the things that it's supposedly bringing you and us as regular people in the cheap seats—that narrative is becoming so far divergent from what your own eyes tell you when you walk around and look. At a certain point, the narrative can't stand up. To the evidence of reality same thing happened with the soviet empire they had all this rhetoric of communist utopia and it was never that obviously but over time it got even more and more divorced more and more the opposite of what all the rhetoric said and eventually when the narrative completely collapses that's very often the last straw of that empire thank you for listening and i appreciate your time Thank you, CJ. We do have a question from the online folks that I was going to ask you real quick before you departed, and the question was, based on your opinion, what are some of your predictions for the next 10 to 20 years? I know, it's an easy one. Yeah. Well, there's a a lot of ways it can go. My preference would be for the American empire to collapse like the Soviet empire, meaning largely nonviolent just sort of political disintegration. I believe that's the best case scenario. Um, it can go out in a blaze of glory. There are, there are two variables in the American empire collapse that did not exist. I mean, there's a lot more than two, but two, two very big ones that are different. One is the world has never been globalized like it is today, and one empire has never dominated the entire world to the extent that the U.S. Empire has dominated the world since World War II. So, that, so we're in uncharted waters as far as what does that look like, when an empire that's that dominant... Because the U.S. Empire is much more dominant even than the British Empire ever was. What does that mean for how the collapse plays out? I don't know. We're in uncharted waters. And the second one, which is even scarier to me, is we've only ever had one empire collapse since nukes were invented. And that was the Soviet empire. And when I look at the Soviet empire collapsing, I go, it is a freaking miracle that no nukes went off as that empire was collapsing, whether on purpose or by accident, right? I mean, it is a miracle no nukes went off anywhere as that thing fell apart. Are we going to be lucky enough to have a second nuclear superpower empire fall apart with no nukes going off? Given our current leaders and their reckless hubris and their stupid aggression and interventionism, including trying to provoke a a nuclear two-front World War III, as far as I can tell, that's what they're trying to do, I don't know. So I'm not saying nuclear World War III is super likely, but I'm saying it's a possible outcome. Political just deep fragmentation, probably your best outcome. Currently, I don't see anybody in a high position of power who could be a Gorbachev figure who could kind of preside over a relatively peaceful and orderly, you know, collapse of this thing. So, yeah, I don't know. And and for that, you know, everybody else who's presenting here, they're they're doing all these very practical nuts and bolts things. They're teaching you homesteading stuff, self-defense, excuse me, all that kind of stuff. Listen to those people. I'm giving you the egghead, big picture, kind of like what to expect when your empire's uh, collapsing. What do you do about it? I don't know. I don't know. Good luck. Good luck. All right, at the risk of CJ losing his voice entirely, let's take maybe one or two questions from the audience, and then we can get on with our day. Does anybody have a question for CJ? Yeah, okay, so the question is, what evidence do I have that some of the people in high positions are aware that the U.S. Empire is in serious decline? Honestly, I don't have any paper trail documentary evidence. I can't point you to like, oh, here's this leaked Pentagon memo where they kind of said, look, yeah, we all know this is falling apart. Evidence, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Honestly, it's it's sort of just a gut feeling that I don't think everybody who's high up in the system, uh, even currently, is completely stupid and incompetent. I think some of them are competent, but then the question is, competent at doing what, <laughs> right? So they might be very smart and very competent, but their number one goal is, I'm going to try and enrich myself and my family and my people as much as I can on the last, you know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Stock market rules for Congress, war profiteering by the military-industrial complex companies, those sorts of things. And I think also that even on the even in the minds of the people who, who see what probably we all see of, of what this is, I think they still believe that they can kick the can down the road another generation or two. I, I think that's what the smarter ones believe. And they think, you know what, this is going to blow up, but can I kind of like duct tape and bailing wire this thing together so that it'll it'll you know grind on through another generation all make a fortune on the way out and maybe you know retire to Belize or whatever and uh, it'll be somebody else's problem and 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 it just becomes a question of how long can you keep kicking that can down the road how long can you keep you know running up another 10 trillion dollars of debt to to fund this thing honestly i'm surprised they've kept it together as long as they have i i thought a decade ago it's going to happen <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I was wrong about how, how skillfully they could use chewing gum and duct tape and bailing wire, uh, on this rickety empire. But yeah, they did. So any other questions? Yes. The question is, has there been an empire in decline that has turned the ship around successfully? Um, only in a very short term sense. I've never seen one that did it long term. And my proof for that is that no empire has ever lasted forever. And it also depends on what you mean by turn it around. So one example I, I didn't dig into here is Diocletian, uh, a late Roman emperor around 300 AD. Diocletian wanted to make Rome great again. He he succeeded in terms of holding the Roman state together and in some ways strengthening the state. But in doing so, he inflicted so much economic damage on the empire and ratcheted up the authoritarianism so much that I would argue in, in the long run, he you know, helped to speed up the decline, even though in the short run, he kind of made the state strong again. And um, Di- Diocletian, by the way, interesting figure. He was the first Roman Empire to say he wanted to be called by the title of Dominus, which is Latin for Lord. It is the title that slaves would use to address their master example of increased authoritarianism even on the symbolic side. So yeah. Now there have been empires um that have sort of bounced back, but they bounce back in a different form where they're not the same thing. So for example, you can look at uh the Persian Empire, the ancient Persian Empire, or the Ancient Chinese Empire. <clears throat> Both of those kind of rose and fell multiple times, but when they would rise again, it was a different dynasty. And it wasn't really the same thing, even though it might be a lot of the same territory and some of the same, you know culture and things like that so yeah or, or another example would be um you know alexander and the macedonians taking over greece um after kind of golden age hellenic greece had uh declined and fallen apart so yeah all right thank you cj everyone give him a big round of applause